0: Good afternoon. I'm Judge John Harwood. To my right is Judge Julie Flood. To my left is Judge Carolyn Thompson. We are your panel today for State v. CKD. One case. Thank you to the clerk's office and to the marshal service for their usual support uh, in being here and helping us. Um, We'll hear from the state.
1: May it please the court, I'm Catherine Hathcock and with me is Christopher Brooks from the Attorney General's Office and we represent the state in this matter. We would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. In this case, the trial court erred in granting defendant's motion to dismiss. For a successful motion to dismiss, a defendant bears the burden to show not only a statutory violation but also irreparable prejudice to his case.
0: Now, Ms. Haythcock, you would agree with me, would you not, that the state did not Uh, object to or appeal from any of the trial court's findings that those are binding?
1: Right. From the trial court's findings, we did appeal the conclusions of law because there is support in the findings that contradict the trial court's conclusions of law.
0: So we are bound by whatever the trial court found as facts.
1: Well, the the standard of review on appeal is whether the trial court's um, conclusions of law are supported by the findings of fact and the evidence, and we contend that the findings of fact. Well,
0: it's not the evidence. It's only the The findings findings of fact, fact. because you didn't, you did not object to any of the findings. So the findings are binding, are they not?
1: Yes, the findings are binding, absolutely. We're not contesting the findings. We're contesting the conclusions of law. And And can
0: you explain to me, Ms. Haythcock, how this case and the findings of fact that the trial judge made are in any way substantially different than the Facts in the Hicks case in Knowles.
1: Yes, Your Honor. And Well, first of all, in Hicks, the magistrate did commit a statutory violation. We don't have that in this case, but in Hicks, the-
0: But the facts, I'm asking how the facts are different, ma'am.
1: The facts in Hicks are that the defendant sought to call his wife. He wanted to actively be reunited with her, and we do not have this in this case. The defendant did not seek to be reunited with his wife. And in fact, he testified at the motion hearing, only had heard a call, and I did not want to burden her at that time.
0: Well, but his wife was unavailable and couldn't come. Isn't that correct?
1: Well, he, we don't know that she was unavailable.
0: Well, oh, yes, we do, because the court said in the case of Hicks, whose reading was .018 and whose wife was temporarily unavailable to pick him up, he could have by the use of a taxi been in the presence of his wife within a short period of time. I apologize that's for, what Judge My, Justice Meyer said in that. So we do know that.
2: That's
1: for Hicks, I apologize. I thought Your Honor was referring to this case with I, this defendant.
0: No, I'm referring to yes. how this case is different yes. than Yes, And Hicks. I
1: apologize for the misunderstanding. Um, But in this case, unlike in Hicks, the defendant did not call his wife and did not want to be reunited with her for the purpose of having her observe his condition for appreciable impairment. He said, I'm not going to wake them up. That's in the transcript, page nine. My thinking was I was just going to wait a few hours and then take an Uber home. And then he said on page 17, I only had her to call and I chose not to burden her at that time of the morning. So it's not the same factual situation that we have in Hicks where he did want to be reunited with her and the magistrate had committed a statutory violation. And also in Hicks, he was on a true hold. There was no unsecured bond where he could have been released to a sober, responsible adult like we have in this case. Ours was an either or where he could be released to a sober, responsible adult on an unsecured bond. But until then, he had to stay at the jail giving his extreme level of impairment and all the other physical indicators that the magistrate documented.
0: Now was this his was his impairment any different than the Hicks impairment?
1: Yes in Hicks we did not have anything documented about his impairment but here we have.
0: Well in Hicks we did have that he had blown an 18.
2: We
1: did. We did have the B.A.C. but here we have more than that we have a B.A.C. of 17 we have red and glassy eyes we have slurred speech and we have an odor of alcohol
0: how is that any different than any general DUI case
1: well this is gross impairment this gentleman But a,
0: it's not any but it was in Hicks it was 18 and this it's 17
1: right and we have other indicators here with this this slurred speech that the magistrate observed and the magistrate also signed the um, affidavit and revocation report of this officer that shows that the defendant sped away from a red light, squealing his tires. That he had an odor of alcohol. Um, that he admitted drinking. So here we have a plethora of information besides the number itself, like what we had in Hicks. And I would submit that that is clear and convincing evidence that the magistrate found it's certainly probable cause where the standard is an odor plus. Um, and I would well, submit
0: probable cause to. To charge someone with DNA. Right,
1: absolutely. It would have been probable cause to arrest. We're, but
0: we're not talking about probable cause No,
1: this arrest. is clear and convincing. Clear and convincing is a, is a standard above. But we're above
0: also not talking about probable cause to arrest or clear and convincing to arrest.
1: Well, clear we're convi- talking
0: about whether he was a danger to himself or others.
1: Right, and the standard under 15A 534.2 is whether the judicial official finds by clear and convincing evidence that the impairment of the defendant's physical or mental faculties presents a danger, of physical injury to himself or others. So the state submits that this gross level of impairment with this slurred speech that the magistrate observed, that he would be harmful to himself if he was allowed to walk outside of the jail. What's a magistrate to do? This man could walk outside, he could walk into the street, he's harmful to himself, he's harmful to others. He'd already made one very bad decision that night to drive at more than double the illegal limit. And this magistrate, when faced with these data points, made the correct decision the state submits, that this was clear and convincing evidence.
3: I have a question for you, Counselor. Mm-hmm. On the um, AOC CR 270 form, the detention order, it's signed at 12.25 AM. But he was taken in, apparently, the day before, at 10.13 PM. Can you explain the, the lapse in time?
1: I believe the 1013 was the arrest, and then he had to be transported to the jail. Maybe there was a wait to see the magistrate. I'm not sure of the delay, but it
3: was. But it was like 11 o'clock by the time the magistrate got a hold to him, right? I believe so, Your Honor. So then why did it take until 1225 a.m. for him to make all these observations?
1: That's not in the transcript or the record, Your Honor, why it took so long. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we would submit that the magistrate did have clear and convincing evidence to place defendant under the impaired driving hold and that it was not a statutory violation for him to do so.
0: So let me get this correct. It's the state's position that at any time one has slurred speech and glassy eyes that that is enough to hold someone for uh, for, for a hold.
1: Well, it would be fact-specific, the state contends, Your Honor. But in this case, we do have more than that. The 17, the red glassy eyes, slurred speech, odor of alcohol, the magistrate's review of the officer. How Office is that any
0: different than any other DUI facts—slurred speech, glassy eyes, odor of alcohol? How is that any different than any other speech? So, what you, what the state's really arguing here is that any time you have that, that's sufficient and clear and convincing evidence to hold someone. Even, isn't that what you're really arguing here ma'am?
1: I don't want to commit to saying that would be the case for all. I think it's fact specific, but here the magistrate did observe this slurred speech himself and these other physical indicators. And I'm not sure what other data points the magistrate could rely on at this point other than speaking to the officer and reviewing his paperwork, signing the um, affidavit and revocation report of the, the officer and reviewing all of these indicators and finding that this defendant is grossly impaired. And gross impairment on a sentencing sheet for judges, um, it's an aggravating factor for a 15 or above. It's either gross impairment or a 15. That can be used as an aggravating factor. And it also triggers the ignition interlock requirement. So clearly the legislature thinks that 15 and above is dangerous.
0: Well, but I'm, at, you're, you're relying on that. But Hicks, it was 18.
1: Yes, and I, Hicks is very different also because the statute was different at the time. At the time, a BAC number only created an inference of impairment, so it was critical for a DWI defendant at the time to gather evidence of appreciable impairment by interacting with witnesses and friends and family. But since the statute has changed, it changed in 1993, several years after Hicks, we now have this um, per se prong where the number, is enough by itself, and it says in 2138 that a jury may convict based on the number alone. So, it's so not you're only-
0: contending that any time it's above an eight that this that this goes into effect and you don't have to show anything else for clear and convincing evidence that one is a danger to themselves or others?
1: Well, I'm saying it's enough for a jury to convict based it on... It is number.
0: enough for the jury to convict, and I believe I wrote the case that said that, yes, actually.
1: You did, Your Honor, <laughs> yes. Very familiar with the WI laws. I acknowledge that, yes.
0: But but you're arguing here today, I think what I just heard you argue was that anything above a point eight is enough to, for clear and convincing evidence to hold someone. That appears to be your argument to me.
1: No, Your Honor. The, there's a case that says the number by itself is not enough. But here we do have these other things that the magistrate did document on the detention of impaired driver form. And in accordance with 15A 532.2B, he did follow those guidelines and complied with the statute and documented all of these things that he did observe. But even if this was a statutory violation, uh, we, we don't concede that it was, we think this was good enough. There's no prejudice here that the defendant has shown. He did not choose to exercise his right. He signed the form. He did not list witnesses. He indicated he did not wish to call anybody to come observe him he signed that form that he'd been notified of his rights and he never asked to use the phone. Um, Some jailers came around twice for two different PBT tests and neither of those times did he ask to use the phone. He may have been sleeping all night, we don't know, but there's no evidence in the transcript that he ever intended to exercise his rights. And again, he doesn't point to any specific prejudicial effect. Um, He testified, I'm not going to wake them up, speaking about his wife. He, said, no, he was only speaking had about
0: his children, I believe, is what the, the trial court found.
1: Well, the transcript on page 9 says, I'm not going to wake them up. That, that was what he testified to. He also said, my thinking was, I'm just going to wait a well, few what, hours. Well, what
0: the trial court found, and you've already conceded you did not object to this, that the intent was to avoid the minor children being awakened and having to travel to the jail with their mother.
1: Right, so, so he did not want to wake his wife up for the family to come pick him up at the jail. He also said, I only had her to call, and I chose not to burden her at that time of the morning. So clearly he's got no indication to wake his wife up. And even if he did call her, there's no indication that he would have had her witness his condition. He said, I didn't want to wake her up. So his purpose may have been for her to come pick him up, but he never says that he wanted her to witness his condition. And in fact said the opposite, that he did not want to wake her up.
0: What about the testimony about calling an Uber and a taxi?
1: He could have called an Uber. If the Uber driver would have come in to pick him up, he was on that unsecured bond where he could have been released to a sober, responsible adult. But again, he chose not to exercise those rights and to not call the Uber. And the woulda, shoulda, coulda, that's not enough to establish prejudice in this case. The facts are clear that he did not call anybody. There is no prejudice.
0: The facts are also clear in this case that the the magistrate city that uh, said both the officer and the magistrate told him that any such driver would be required to come in and sign and actually sign to take responsibility for him as a sober responsible adult which they did not think the driver would be willing to do. The court found that, is that correct?
1: That's correct, yes. So for that reason he chose not to call anybody. He could have. It's not incumbent on the judicial officials or the magistrate to
0: it's also not incumbent upon them to lie to him either, is it?
1: I don't think there's a finding that he was lied to. He could have certainly made that decision to call an Uber or a taxi or a friend or anybody to come get him who was sober. That was his decision. This is his case. He was the one who was charged with DWI, and he did not exercise his right. Didn't list witnesses, chose not to call anybody. He said his wife was the only per- the only per—only had her to call, he said and he chose not to do that. The fact remains he did not call anybody, he's not prejudiced. Didn't ask the jailers to call anybody, never asked to use a phone. And the case law makes clear that an officer's duty goes no further than allowing a defendant access to a telephone.
3: Well, what about this, you can't be released until you blow a zero?
1: The, the defendant testified that he was told that and the trial court credited him with that, but there's nothing in the paperwork that that says that that was the case, but, but you're again,
0: bound by that. The trial court found it, and you did not object. Right.
1: So, but but even if that is the case, again, it, it all comes back to the prejudice. Where was he prejudiced by that? It's the burden is on him, under fifteen eighty nine fifty four a four. I'm sorry, 158-1443, where he has to show the prejudice.
3: Wait a minute. So the magistrate's... Hold, the magistrate held him without telling him yeah you're a danger to yourself and others if you get out there and start driving plus if you um, don't blow a zero you can't go anywhere and then talked um, skeptically about whether or not an Uber person would come in and sign for him and you don't think he was prejudiced?
1: No the burden is on him to show prejudice to his case and he hasn't done that here. It's not per se prejudice. That was the rule in Hill but since the statute changed in 1993 and we had this this per se prong for the number, it's no longer inherently prejudicial for a defendant's rights to be violated.
0: So you're saying Knoll's is no longer effective?
1: That's right, I'm saying Knoll is no longer good law since the statute changed. And in the 35 years since Knoll, where we have all of these Knoll cases fleshing out the law, there has not been a case yet where a defendant has met the prejudice burden under Knoll in light of that new per se prong of impairment. There's not one case. And we had a case recently, Your Honor, I believe you wrote it, State versus King, where the defendant was in jail for six days illegally. He fell and hit his head. He suffered an epileptic seizure, and he testified that his memory was impaired, and he wouldn't have been able to testify on his own behalf, and even that was not enough to show prejudice.
0: I don't think that has any relation to this case at all. It is whether or not I'm not going to get into it. It doesn't have any relation to this case, okay. in my opinion, ma'am. Okay. And I wrote the case. Yes.
1: And then th- for the constitutional argument, the defendant also has to show prejudice under 15A 954 for a motion to dismiss. The defendant bears the burden to show that his constitutional rights have been flagrantly violated. And there is such a reparable prejudice to the defendant's preparation of his case that there is no remedy but to dismiss the prosecution. We have the same standard for the statutory and the constitutional violations, where the defendant himself bears that heavy burden to show prejudice, and that there's no remedy but to dismiss the prosecution. And speaking of remedies, there would have been a remedy in this case where the trial court could have suppressed the um the appreciable impairment prong. If he was denied access to friends and family that would have been an alternative short of dismissal that the trial court could have pursued. The statute says that there's no remedy but to dismiss but there was an alternative remedy short of dismissal in this case. The trial court. So you said the
0: statute says there's no nothing short of dismissal? It does. And you say that there but you say that there is so you're saying the judge doesn't have to follow the statutes? is that what the state's arguing?
1: No, the statute says that the, the, the court must dismiss if it determines that the defendant's constitutional rights have been flagrantly violated and there is such a reparable prejudice to the defendant's preparation of his case that there is no remedy but to dismiss. And the state's position is that there was a remedy short of dismissal that would have allowed the case to proceed, namely suppressing the appreciable impairment prong and forcing the state to proceed on the number only on the per se prong of DWI. So again, the state does not believe that there was a statutory violation in this case, either by the impaired driving hold or by forcing the defendant to stay in jail until he... Blue a .00, and even if there was a statutory violation, the defendant has failed to carry the heavy burden of pretrial dismissal for violation of his statutory and constitutional rights. And if there are no further questions on Noel, I will defer to my co-counsel, Chris Brooks, to discuss its function.
2: may it please the court Chris Brooks of the Attorney General's office I, I kind of want to tag on a little bit to what counsel was saying in this case the general statute that's applicable talks about the magistrate judicial official must find by clearing convincing evidence X actual if you look at page 9 of the record that's exactly what the magistrate does there is no requirement by our general statute that you make additional findings of fact when I was thinking about this to me think about this based on some of the questions it's just like if a judge were to make uh, determination that a longer term of probation is needed. All the judge has to do is check the block. That's it. That's what happened here. We checked the block. But at the end of the day, it really boils down to and, and how this is different than Hicks. This person was informed of his rights, was informed uh, of the rights. He was informed he could have witnesses, he could make phone calls. That's not what happened in Hicks. That's what happened here. And more importantly, as seen by page eight of the record, he signed on this form with his own signature that he did not want witnesses. So, what's happening now is a hindsight argument. Well, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that, but there's no evidence in this case he would have done that. And, Your Honor, to kind of further answer your question about the statute, if this court finds that there was a violation somehow because of Hicks, it would be as to the impairment theory. It would not be as to the point 17 in this case, which now, in, I believe, State versus Naran from a few years ago um, talks about it's a per se theory, it's an entirely different theory of prosecuting a DWI case. It's different. That's one of the huge reasons why this case is different than Hicks. But again, informed of his rights, chose not to exercise them. In fact, there's no contrary testimony that he did want to exercise them. Um, but that's why it's so important. H- had he checked the blocks, had he said he wanted witnesses and couldn't get any witnesses there, or called his wife and his wife didn't have a car uh, to get up there, that's different. That's Hicks. Here, he did not want to call it. The case should be ended right then and there by not exercising his rights, period. Are we supposed to now speculate as in every single solitary case from this point forward, what the defendant wants later. And in this case, it's more than just um, the 17. You've got the, the magistrate talked to the judicial, excuse me, the magistrate judicial official talked to um, the officer in this case. He saw the defendant, and in his opinion, this person should not be released. You have to give some discretion to a, a judicial official in making that determination. That's what happened. He made the he checked the block. That's what's required by statute. Period. I'm not sure if any statute uh, in this case it says you have to make additional findings. Effect. Now that may be on the AOC form, but that doesn't mean it's a requirement. Period. He found clear and convincing evidence this person was harmed not only to himself but to others and to property. But at the end, so you're saying that the AOC form, where it says you've got to specify reasons, is wrong? Well, Your Honor, it's not supported by statute. Nowhere did I see in this statute 15A 534.2 does it say you have to make findings that you have to make findings of fact. What it says is the magistrate by clearing convincing evidence does this. It doesn't say you have to support those facts. It, it doesn't. And I'm reading the statute right directly from it. There is so no you're law. saying that the judge can just
0: check that and that's all he has to do and you can hold someone until they it's zero that's what you're saying the statute permits
2: no your honor and i'm not sure where the zero came from the only evidence of the zero is the self-serving statements of the defendant but as your honor mentioned earlier it's a finding of fact and we're bound by that but you you gotta think not about this case but you've got to think globally which is really important in this case because here there is no statutory requirement actually the general statute says 0.05 so we assume the magistrate followed the actual, um, the general statute, which there's been no finding that he didn't follow the general statute from my memory. What you've got is the defendant saying the jailers said this, not the magistrate, and, and to answer your honor's question, it wasn't the magistrate. It was the defendant saying the jailers told him that, that he had to blow and blow an 05. But again, that's a finding of fact. Well, they did in fact hold him until it was a zero, though that is also a fact, is it not? I don't know, I believe that was stipulated to. yes, your honor. But at the end of the day, he didn't make a call it, it, testimony was, he wasn't offered, but did he ever request a witness? I can tell you that I would imagine that his defendant had all asked the jailers your honor, uh, Mr. Jailer. Can I, I want to call my wife or I want to call Uber. He would have testified to that at the, at the, at the motion hearing, that I wanted to make a fall, phone call and I was denied. That was not found in this case. Was, there's was no testimony or no finding of fact from my memory that he was ever denied access to a phone or witness. He says they didn't offer it to me. Well, th- there's a difference between offering something to someone and then denying something to well, someone. What, They're totally different. What Judge Crosswhite found
0: was the defendant asked the arresting officer and the magistrate if he could call a taxi or an Uber to pick him up and drive him home. Both the officer and the magistrate told him that such driver would be required to come inside and actually sign to take responsibility for him as a sober, responsible adult, which they did not think that the driver would be willing to do.
2: And Your Honor, with all due respect, common sense proves that. I mean, what Uber driver, what Lyft driver do you know that's going to walk in there and sign for a person? Now, just because they told him that, which to me is the truth, it's not a lie, it's a, it's an, a real assessment of how things are these days. But just but because that, he, doesn't that go against what your argument is he never
0: asked to call anybody. He never. You, that's what you were arguing. So I'm asking you
2: how is what you're arguing supported by what the judge said. Because of the simple fact, Your Honor, he was told that and he could have made the decision to call them. He didn't say we are not letting you call an Uber or something else. Their comment was, look, you can call. We don't think someone's going to come in here and do it. That's absolutely different than saying we are not allowing you to call an Uber. No one said he couldn't call an Uber, but honestly, with an Uber, are you telling me that, as far as the magistrate looking to the defendant, someone's going to walk in here and sign for you? I've taken enough Ubers, when they do arrive, um, that, that that driver is not going to come in and sign responsibility for you. And that's the whole point. You can do it. No one said you can't, but this is honestly what's going to happen. And, and the theory of the fact that you can tell somebody, I want to sign for an Uber, it just opens up the, the liability, the civil liabilities from that. From this point forward, if someone says, okay, I'm, I'm released on a bond, if I'm just, I, I'm impaired, I blew a 17, I've got slurred speech, and it's really important to think about that slurred speech. It's not just that the person misspoke a word, it's slurred speech. That's a physical impairment, so you're going to let someone who was passive, who had slurred speech. Just walk right on out so okay you're gonna walk out on the street you're gonna call an uber what are we supposed to do as law enforcement are we supposed to sit there on the curb beside you and wait for an uber to show up or just let you walk on out that's that's the reason why it's so important for a sober person to take charge of that person because they can represent a danger and the question you ask about is an 08 every single solitary time one of the conditions no it's not a per se rule it's something that the magistrate has to by statute Look and see if there's clear and convincing evidence that this person is a danger. The magistrate did that, heard all the information. He signed the affidavit and revocation report in this case, so he sees all the information in that affidavit. He he, um, observes the defendant. He gives the defendant his rights, and he's of the opinion, you know what, by the evidence presented to me, this person is a danger to himself and others. Uh, I mean, the thought of letting someone who blows a 17, actually blew an 18 and then a 17, walk out on the streets who can't even speak clearly, walk out on the streets is, to me, that's a, that's a danger. Um, he walks out in the street and he gets run over by a car. That's a danger to himself, it's a danger to the driver, it's a danger to property, it's all three. But it's easy to sit here in hindsight and look at it, but you have, to, you have to kind of put yourself in the position of a magistrate. If we're magistrates, we see somebody with that high of a BAC, are we just going to let them walk right on out? No, that's the point of why I want a sober individual. And, and I'll try not to use all our rebuttal time, but I just wanted to point out one more thing, too. What's really important in this case, too, is about the expunctions. Now I realize legislature is going back and forth, and uh, AOC is aware of the issues going back and forth with the expunctions, but counsel did say this case should be dismissed because there's no right of appeal to the expunction. This case is not about appealing the expunction. Uh, in, in- rate, excuse me, state versus JC is about a case, I believe it was for law enforcement or something else, a matter got expunged. That's not what this is about. We have a clear right under 15A 1445 to appeal. So we have that right. But what we do need is important in this case and is how we got here. This is unique. I haven't seen one like this before where the the case gets dismissed. But you're taking away the state's right to appeal under 15A, 1445. There need to be some procedure, just like with Judge Crosswhite and the other judge's name slipped my mind, I apologize, entering an order staying the matter. We believe that was the proper procedure. If this court finds that it's going to uh, reverse the trial court, then I think it requests the court to be clear in in its decision that X, Y, Z need to happen. This case is remanded for trial. The the, uh, expunction is no longer in place. If this court were to say we agree with the trial court, then this matter, I believe in the court's opinion, should dictate that matter should be expunged, just to to make the record clear. Because this did happen before the stay by the legislature of 15A 1440, excuse me, 146 came into place. But again, at the end of the day, this person exercised, uh, was it for their rights? Hicks wasn't informed of their rights made the decision, their own decision, not to list witnesses, not to call somebody. He wanted to spend a little time in the jail and call an Uber later. And that's what happened in this case. But actually, by the time that came around, he went ahead and walked out, Your Honor. Know, we asked this court to reverse the trial court, or remand this case for new proceedings. And one last thing, if this court has such a condition or an issue with the, the rights in this case, him not being able to exercise his rights, then, then another example, as counsel mentioned, would be to remand this case to proceed only on the per se theory because, therefore, any, any violation of Hicks that's out there is gone, because it's not about witnesses. There's no testimony, there's no finding a fact in this case that he wanted to go have a lab test or anything else. Um, so that there's no real issue about the per se theory, Your Honor. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks. Thank you. We'll, we'll hear from the Applee.
0: proceed
4: may it please the court I'm assistant appellate defender Dan Schatz I appear today on behalf of the appellee mr. D um, and as your honor noted in your questioning of the state this case factually is indistinguishable from the Hicks portion of the state v. null case and just as mr. Hicks was in, entitled to relief and entitled to have his charge dismissed so too is Mr. D. the case.: well, What do you say about the state's argument
0: that, uh, that he signed saying he didn't want a witness, that he'd waived all that right? That how does that not make it different from Hicks?
4: Well, the, the key similarity is that just as Mr. Hicks told the magistrate he wanted to take a taxi home, and the North Carolina Supreme Court said basically there was no reason in law why the magistrate should stop him from just taking a taxi home with his .18. Um, he made it very clear what he intended to do, Mr. D, in this case. The, the fact that he signed the form, you know, we also have findings that he told the magistrate he wanted to take an Uber home. We have a finding of fact that that, he, that is what he intended to do. And, and we have a finding of fact that if he had done so, he could have been home in 25 or 30 minutes. So, so, so those are the salient points in comparing this case to, to Mr. Hicks in the Noll case, and they're 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 substantially identical. You know, um, I, I do want to get out one very important point here um, in response to the state's argument. You know, the state said that, that the Null case is no longer a good law because the law changed in 1999 after the Null case. The law changed before the Null case. The per se prong was in place before the Null case, and it's actually discussed in Null as to why they are um, no longer proceeding under the per se uh, prejudice uh, analysis from Hill with respect to statutory violations, which is, you know, that's a point that's clearly, you know, Null says for, statu- for statutory violations, the rule in Hill is abrogated by the adoption of the per se uh, impairment prompt. But it's still important f- to look at, at the, why the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals in the Null case on all three defendants. Um, you know, the Court of Appeals agreed with the defendants and agreed with the trial court that there was a statutory violation, but, but basically said we now have this per se prong, you know, defendant Noel blew a 30, defendant Warren blew a 25, defendant Hicks blew an 18, and yet, and, and so in the Court of Appeals, basically they're saying, you know, the, the defendant hasn't answered that, there's no prejudice. And the North Carolina Supreme Court reverses the Court of Appeals on exactly this point and says we agree there's no longer a per se prejudice prong, but these defendants were all prejudiced because they lost the opportunity to develop evidence that might rebut the state's case, and and and, and you know in in null the re- the remedy wasn't you no, know, you can have a trial but only on the per se prong, it, which which you know if that so the states position for this you know now they're talking about it in context of the constitutional violation but but again if that if that's not the remedy in noel and hicks and warren it it equally can't be the remedy here because and, and part of the reason for that i think is that in addition to going to the substantial impairment prong you know the rule in this state is that that the the result of the test is not an irrebuttable presumption it can be rebutted it's not a conclusive it's a, it makes a prima facie case but it's not irrebuttable and, and one of the ways a, a, you can imagine that a defendant might try to rebut it is by gathering evidence of, of non impairment and then you know arguing to the jury that, that this shows that the machine wasn't working right you know there's all kinds of, of ways but but what really matters is is, is what the North Carolina Supreme Court did and how they resolved the prejudice issue in Knoll, because what they looked to was the lost opportunity to develop independent evidence and they said that is the prejudice. That, that's that's um, in the Knoll case and it is on, excuse me. looks like it would be page 547 to 548 in in the North Carolina reports. And and they just talk about the lost opportunity is the prejudice. The lost opportunities in all three cases to secure independent proof of sobriety and the lost chance in one of the cases to secure a second chance uh, for a blood test constitute prejudice to the defendant in these cases. So the, so the North Carolina Supreme Court is saying the lost opportunity to gather evidence is the prejudice. You know, they don't say, well, he blew, he blew an 18, he, he didn't offer any, anything in response to that. That's just not the analysis our Supreme Court undertook. And, and so long as no remains good law, which it is, this is the appropriate prejudice analysis. And, and, and that just goes, You know, when we're talking about a pretrial setting and the lost opportunity to gather evidence or the lost opportunity for a defendant to make their case, um, it's different than an analysis of trial prejudice because because the lost opportunity is, is, and there are a couple of other areas in our law where we have this different, you know, and the two that come to my mind are the speedy trial context where, where essentially there, there's a presumption that is rebuttable but, but deepens over time of prejudice. Uh, and, and ultimately what the cases say is, look, after a certain period of time, people's memory fade. We're not putting the burden on the defendant to show it specifically. The prejudice comes in that context just from the passage of time. And it's similar here. The, 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 the lost opportunity at the in the critical window of time um, is the prejudice.
0: Counselor, in your in your brief, you say that the defendant was not given the opportunity to call anyone at um, initially. and then you've used also the term. he was denied access to communicate. Um, and other times you say the e- efforts to exercise his rights were prevented. And to me, those are all really different things as to whether somebody's just out and out denied um, and didn't try. Or ha- how did he try to exercise his rights when he checks a form that, say I do, that says, I do not wish to contact anyone for the purpose of observing me at the jail or administering an additional chemical analysis? So how is that a lost opportunity and why wouldn't his refusal to make a call be fatal to his prejudice argument?
4: Uh, be, he expressed the intention of taking an Uber home. And if he had done that, he would have been in his wife's presence. And, and I do think it's clear from the transcript, and, and this is on, on page nine, he was talking about his not waking the kids up, not, not waking his wife up. It, it's, it's very clear, and I don't think there's any way to read that part of the transcript differently. But, but he told the magistrate, I want to go home. I don't want to wake my wife up, but I want to go home. I'm going to call an Uber. And they said, yeah, there's no point in doing that. They're not going to come in. And it may be true that no Uber driver is going to sign, but that's not this, the DWI hold order imposed by the magistrate. I mean, is the only thing that stopped Mr. D from calling an Uber and going home. The order, regardless of what the magistrate said, the order did prevent mr. D from doing exactly that and, and that's exactly what you know the, the ultimate reading of the null case is the magistrate should have let mr. Null, uh, mr. Hicks take a taxi home. You know the state seems to resist that that being the answer, but that's what the case says. And, and you know Uber can do that. We always, I, I've never taken an Uber, but I, I'm pretty sure take driving home people who have been drinking and shouldn't be driving is a big part of their business. They advertise it, they, they put it on their website, which I noted in the brief. Um, and, and that's what, Noel, That's what in Knoll, in that's, you know, basically the North Carolina Supreme Court said there was no reason for the magistrate not to let Mr. No, Mr. Hicks do that. You know, they didn't say he could have, well, in, in that case, you know, I think we were talking earlier about the, the factual distinction that Mr. Hicks did call his wife who said, my car's not working, I can't come pick you up. You know that actually works. That that that's I think less well, good for Mr. X because because again, remember his plan is I'm going to ta- I want to take a taxi home. He could have just as easily told his wife, "Well, you take a taxi up here and come get me, and then we'll take a taxi back home together," and he would have had his witness that way. But that's not what the Supreme Court said. That's not how they looked at it. That's not how they reviewed it. And and, and that's that's. I think that I also want to suggest that the state's position of ignores the role of the superior court as the fact finder here. The, ma- uh, the magistrate's checking the form on the box is not unreviewable, and, and the, the court of review for this is the superior court, where the superior court sits as finder of fact and finds the facts and, and apply, makes conclusions of law, and the test isn't whether the evidence would support different findings than what the trial court made. And here we have findings by the trial court.
3: Counselor, can I just ask you a question sure. about um, subsection C of 15A-534, where in part it reads, um, in determining which conditions of release to impose the judicial official must on the basis of available information, take into account the nature and the circumstances of the offense charged, the weight of be evidence against the defendant, defendant's family ties, and so forth and so on. But in the first paragraph under the findings on the AOC CR 270, it seems like it's just BAC point 17, red glassy eyes, slurred speech, odor of alcohol. I'd like to hear your argument on whether that was sufficient or insufficient since co- opposing counsel emphasized the word slurred. Let me hear your argument.
4: Okay, so my argument on that is, again, mainly that, that that's... That may be evidence of impairment, but it doesn't speak to danger, and I think the the, the statute to be looking at is actually uh, 1585.34.2. Now, under uh, 533, the magistrate set the general conditions of release as an unsecured bond, and and said other than the immediate concern about impairment, an unsecured bond suits the purposes of pretrial release. So that's, that's mainly what's going on under 533. Then under 534.2, excuse me, under 534. Anyway, under 534.2, the specific standard that the legislature put in the statute for, for when these holds are, are permissible is clear and convincing evidence that the impairment of the defendant's physical or mental faculties presents a danger. So slurred speech does not is not a finding that, that speaks to danger. You know, the legislature could have crafted a statute that said, you know, th- if the defendant blows over a point .15, or pick, pick any number on the scale. The, the legislature could do that and say, in those cases, the magistrate should put, impose a hold. But that's not what they did. They, they, the legislature tied this specifically to the danger to self, others, or property. And, and having slurred speech, just, it doesn't speak to the injury. And so the trial court found as fact that there was no evidence, you know, the, the, basically the court found that the defendant was polite and cooperative, complied with all the instructions, there was no evidence that the defendant created a disturbance or would do so, and that's finding seven. And Then you have finding nine, no other evidence was offered to support the conclusion by clear and convincing evidence of the defendant's level of impairments would present a danger of physical injury to him or damage to property. So the trial court found there was no, none of the other evidence spoke to uh, danger. And that's a finding of fact uh, that that is unchallenged here. Um, You know, and then on finding 11, defendant intended to comply with the unsecured bond provisions and then obtain a taxi or Uber to travel home. That's the finding. Um, to have his wife observe his condition at their home. And of course, he doesn't have to say, I mean, that's just inherent in what he's telling the magistrate he's planning on doing. I'm gonna take an Uber home, I'm not gonna make my wife get up and put the kids in the car and wake them up, but I'm gonna take an Uber home. It's in, it's naturally inherent that if he did that, his wife would observe him. Um, and you also, it's not really talked about, but you also get an, a second witness from the Uber driver. Um, You know, and so, so, you know, when the state says in its argument that, that he didn't want to be reunited with his wife, that's not really an accurate reflection. He didn't call her, but that doesn't, and he didn't sign the form and say, I want her to be my witness. But, but it's clear from what he told the magistrate and what the trial court found that that was, in fact, his intention, and, and, and those findings are binding. And. Having said that, I think I've covered everything I want to say about the DWI hole, and I think I do want to speak a little bit regarding the constitutional violation, the Hill, State v. Hill, and I think it is really important to recognize what, what the North Carolina Supreme Court in State v. Williams had cited in the briefs. So this is in 2008, 20 years after no and long, long after Hill, the North Carolina Supreme Court talking about a different kind of violation. It's not a driving law impaired. It, it's a different case that involved the, the, the state's failure to preserve, or to actually in that case destroyed evidence that the defendant said was gonna help his case. And, and then the North Carolina court, uh, Supreme Court is citing, not to, they don't just cite to Hill and say it's good law. They actually talk about Hill and explain why it's still the law and they explain that 15A954A4 was intended to codify the outcome of State v. Hill. So the statute of the state read read to your honors, uh, in State v. Williams, our state Supreme Court says that statute was intended to codify the outcome of State v. Hill. And and in State v. Hill, the the North Carolina Supreme Court applied, they called it a per se prejudice, but really what they said is, one way of interpreting that is look, where we don't know exactly what the evidence would have been because the opportunity to create it was was lost, you know. Thinking of it in terms of how we usually look at harmless, you know, constitutional issues and harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, they're saying the state can't prove it harmless. We're going to presume that it's prejudicial, and, and so in State v. Williams, uh, they they actually quote the the part about this court's concern in Hill regarding the. Irreparable prejudice to the defendant's ability to quote, and that so they start quoting from Hill, obtain evidence which might prove his innocence. End quote. Is analogous to our concern for the defendant in this case, uh, from the effect of, of being denied the evidence that he was complaining about. So, so, so in 2008, our North Carolina Supreme Court is still very clearly on board that that as to constitutional law, Hill. Both remains good law, and that the statute fifteen a nine fifty four a four, which just which provides a procedural mechanism for a motion to dismiss for constitutional violations. You know, is a codification of the outcome of State v. Hill, and, and, and so I, I do think, in, insofar as there's really a meaningful distinction between the statutory violations, and the you know where, where the prejudices in the loss of the opportunity to, to develop the evidence and the constitutional violation, where, where the actual deprivation of the right to be seen by others, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're two different tracks that take us, I think, to the same place, and they both remain valid tracks to get there.
0: Would you address the state's argument that uh, we can send it back for? a non-aggravating just on the, the first, on the
4: point. Yes. So, so, so the state suggests that as a remedy for the constitutional violation. Um, but, 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 again, Noel says that that's not even the right remedy for a statutory violation. The, you know, no. again, in, in Noel, if, if that were an available remedy, that would have been the remedy in no because because those defendants again the only thing they had to challenge their 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 readings on the test the 0.30, 0.25, 0.18 for Mr. Hicks who is the closest analog you know the court didn't require them to say well how, how would how would you have challenged those numbers that's what the court of appeals said well but i think this
0: i'm don't I think I'm putting words in the state's mouth to say this. I think what they're arguing is that after the DWI statute was changed with the point eight in it, that that is what the change is. That's yeah. what I'd like to
4: And, and but, but the state is incorrect that that happened after Noll. That happened before No, That was already the law at the time of Noll. The state's just wrong about that. Well, safe roads 1988
0: case, as I appeared to Knoll is a 1988. Yes, case. and the statute
4: changed in 1983, not 1993, as the state said in its argument. This, the statutory changes were 1983. Uh, and in the Knoll case, they talk about the statutory changes. They talk about the fact that we have a per se prong now. So so that's built into Knoll. That's all already factored in in the outcome of Knoll. The North Carolina Supreme Court took into account the changes in the statute, um, And so there's no no statutory change after Knoll that could have statutorily abrogated the holding of Knoll. That's just just inaccurate. Would you address the, the part about expunction? We are not saying the state doesn't get to appeal the dismissal of the DWI. We're just saying relief from the expunction. Is not available to the state in the in the appeal process. Honestly, I've no position what would, what should or might happen if there's a remand. And I'm not I'm not saying what the state seems to be arguing against here. I'm just saying the North Carolina Supreme Court said the state doesn't get to a, doesn't get to appeal an expunction. And, and so you know what what the impact if, if this court were to reverse and remand. You know what the what the impact is as a matter of law would be. We have no I have no position on that, and that that I think is hypothetical at this point and just not properly before the court. Um, but but I, we're not trying to make this some backdoor way to say the state doesn't get to appeal the dismissal. If that answers your question, Your Honor. Um, so so. You know those you know now those documents were expunged by law. I, again, I. I can see that it might be a complicated question on remand. Um, The state may have other ways of recreating all the evidence without using the actual court documents that that were expunged, although they they physically exist. So I have no—again, to me, this is all uh, hypothetical—and hope, you know, I'd like to think we won't get there. Um, But, 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 yeah, I'm not. All I'm saying is, is this court isn't the avenue to review. For the state to get relief from the expunction, which you know that that all happens as a matter of law, I think. Um, I I would ask this court. You know, we've been careful not not to use Mr. D's name live and on the internet, and and even if this court were were to reverse and remand for further proceedings, we we would ask the court not to use Mr. D's name, in a you know in any opinion that's going to be available online, to essentially to maintain the efficacy of an expunction, wh- whether it's now or you know, if he's acquitted a trial, and st- you know, that may still be in the future. Um, but but, but I, I, th- that's all I have to say about the expunction. Um, and so if there are no further questions about the, the dismissal and, and the error, I will just ask the court to affirm the Superior Court.
2: hoping I had the six minutes there um, really quickly how Hicks is different I believe we disagree about what laws in effect in Hicks was binding upon the court in Hicks the statute may have passed but I believe the statute was in 1993 not 1983 but regardless they were talking about the statutes in effect then so that's what the Supreme Court's opinions about um, we, we keep going and, and most importantly the defendant Hicks was not informed of his rights that's where the prejudice kind of comes in and, and the dismissal, but here he was informed of his rights. He signed the rights form. And, and, and I want to, you've
0: talked a lot about this rights form, and so I want to go back and read you, and I know you know exactly what it says, but it doesn't seem that, that been exactly what you've argued. Uh, it says that I do not wish to contact anyone for the purpose of observing me At the jail or administering an additional chemical analysis it doesn't have anything to do with going to like getting the taxi getting uber it doesn't waive any of that although you seem to have been arguing that from the beginning that by signing that he's waived that right
2: your honor just to to best answer your question um, his own testimony page 8 at some point prior to being locked up were you given the opportunity to use the phone yes did you call anyone I did not who you might have called? I might have called my wife. And then he goes on, uh, I said that I could call my wife, but I have two children, so I am not going to wake them. Um, so again, he's talking about his wife. Um, he goes on, um, excuse me, I got the pages out of order. Um, and you thought you were, co- by contacting your wife, excuse me, and then you thought about contacting your wife, right? But she would have been asleep and you didn't want to bother her. Correct. All of his testimony from pages 9, excuse me, 8 through 12, he talks about he had the opportunity. In fact, there was another comment um, on page 11 about being able to use the phone later and he didn't. So he was informed of his rights. That's why Hicks does not apply because he was informed of his rights, he didn't exercise them. He could have called an Uber if he wanted to and he didn't. But what's really important in this case, if you think about it globally, from now on what you've got is a person who blows an 18 can say, you know what, I'm going to go walk out and get an Uber. Unless the the judicial official puts a, a secured bond on them, now they can walk out. You've got to find that the person was combative or whatever else. If you don't have the person is just impaired, has slurred speech, red glassy eyes, unless they fight or hit something, you have to let them walk on out.
0: Now, um, you you talk a lot and, and you're over and I'm asking you questions, so oh. feel free to continue on. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, you were answering a question and I'm going to ask you another one Yes, sir. for you to continue on. You go over and over and we've had a lot of talk about, well the magistrate found this and the magistrate found that. Does the Superior Court have any oversight over what the magistrate, do they have to take what the magistrate said or can they make their own determination as to whether or not?
2: Well I believe that the Superior Court judge is reviewing what the magistrate did.
0: And he can find whether or not it was
2: improper, right? Well, I'm not going to tell a Superior Court judge no, so, um... And he found otherwise here, did he not? He found that this
0: was not sufficient evidence. Well, Your Honor, uh, I would kind of note that a District Court judge found it was. and the superior But he court got ju- a right to appeal to Superior Court, and the Superior Court judge
2: had the ultimate determination, we don't make findings up here. Well, Your Honor, I think that the problem is the focus on the fact that you have to put additional findings on there. It's just like a probation, extending probation, all you have to do is check the box. It's on the, the judgment and commitments, you make a longer term. I think that's all really the question is, did the judicial official find the person was clear and convincing evidence they might be assault- a danger to themselves, others or property? Yes, it's marked. I'm and not sure what- the
0: Court found that there was not sufficient evidence for him to find that, didn't they? And you did not object to that
2: finding itself your honor i believe what what i'm saying here is the superior court judge relied solely on those factors period and i think if you limit yourself to that that's erroneous i don't think that you have to list out all the factors on the judgment the question by statute is did this judge excuse me the judicial official find by clear, clear and convincing evidence of x yes so, to me, the real question is not reevaluating all of that, it's whether that was done. That was done here. Well, what. Not to argue with you, but I'm probably getting ready to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I welcome it, Your Honor. Just... Uh, what Judge Crosswhite found was the magistrate also set a DWI hold for the defendant using Form AOC CR 27 at 1120. The magistrate's written findings on the Form AOC CR 207 were. PAC point 17. red glassy eyes, slurred speech, odor of alcohol. Next, no other evidence was offered to support a conclusion by clear and convincing evidence. The defendant's level of impairment was such that his release on the insecure Bunk would present a danger to himself or physical injury to others. That's what the judge found as a fact. And then the judge said, there is no clear and convincing evidence that if the defendant was released, he would create a threat of physical injury or suffer or damage to property and therefore should have been released. The judge concluded that based upon that, did he not?
2: That's what the judge did in his order, yes, sir. Now, is that right? In our opinion, no, sir. Because even if you were just to stick with these four things, just the four, which we believe there's more because the magistrate had more information before him, and I Well, he wish-
0: didn't make any other... You say you believe there are more, but the, he didn't make any other findings. And the judge said there was no more, and you did not
2: object to that. Correct, Your Honor. And on, it does, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And the reason I say this is because just with these four... Now, I think the court, we could object to the findings of fact, but only evidence really presented at the hearing was the defendant testifying on his own behalf. So there was no more testimony presented, and the documents weren't presented, which should have been but we're sitting in the catbird seat here and saying that. But at the end of the day, the true question is, which would be a conclusion of law in our opinion, was whether these four things present evidence of whether it's clear and convincing the person might be a harm to themselves, to themselves, others, or property. Here, a person who's got a BAC of .17, it doesn't matter if the person sat around is fine. I've seen people with a .17 falling down drunk, but that doesn't change the fact with a .17 in slurred speech just the slurred speech alone. If you see someone that impaired with slurred speech, do you think it's okay to let them walk out? You let them walk out of a location that they probably don't even know? No, that's a danger to themselves. How
0: many DUIs have we seen in this court where the officer did not testify that they saw slurred speech and glassy eyes? That's the standard officer testimony, is it not, sir? No, sir.
2: It's it is funny. not. I've done many DWI and implied consent, uh, consent cases, and there's not. In fact, the defense attorney will be the first question they'll ask, was my client speech slurred? No, it wasn't. But here, you, and, that, and I understand why Your Honor's going with it, but also the 35 years, have you seen a case that's reversed based on this? No, and even if this court were to find there was some kind of violation of his being able to contact witnesses and everything else, which he signed a form they didn't want to. He testified that he didn't want to. Even if it was, in this case, should go back just not allowing the impairment theory. It would be under the point 17, and the state could not present evidence of why they thought he was guilty of DWI on that. You can't instruct on that because you're trying him solely on the number. And, and I disagree with counsel about the, the timing of, of Hicks and all those cases, because I don't believe there was a per se theory back then, now it, that when Mr. Hicks committed the offense. There may have been when the Supreme Court issued an opinion. I still kind of disagree with that. But at the end of the day, we still have, the state still has the point seventeen, which he can be tried, which is a per se finding of impairment, Your Honor. If no other questions, I appreciate you. your time. Thank you.